So Kingdom Foundations is about our projects. It's also about our discipleship and the work that God wants to do in us, the freedom that God wants to give us, the, the foundations that God wants to establish in our life as well. So cards are still coming in. I've had a few of you say, I still have my commitment card. I've been really praying about this and I want to be turning that in. And today's our last kind of formal day to turn that in. And as, as Adam mentioned a few minutes ago, we will be making the big announcement next week about where we are and what moving forward looks like. And we're just super excited about that. If you haven't had a chance to really prayerfully consider about your participation, I hope you will because I just don't want you to miss out on the good things that God is doing in us and through us. So sometimes when we talk about money, people get this kind of icky feeling like we're talking about money in church. It just doesn't feel good. I think that's because so often money is tied to our sin. How many of you have had a sin? Anybody? Anybody had a sin in this room? All right, chances are your sin has cost you something at some point, and chances are at some point you spent some money on your sin. And I think, as we talked about last week, sin is just expensive. There are always expensive ramifications from it. But I think that part of the reason why it's such a hard thing for us to talk about is because in our hands so often we use money in a warped way. And it's only as we fully surrender our resources to God and give access to the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us that God then uses our resources for his kingdom, for his purposes, for his priorities. So we're going to be leaning into that today. The Bible is packed with over 2,000 scriptures about money and tithing and possessions. Over 2,000. The Bible says a lot about money. In fact, almost, almost half of Jesus' parables have to do with money or possessions. Isn't that interesting? There are twice as many passages that deal with money than prayer and faith combined. God has a lot to say to us about this, and it's important that as people of faith, we listen to what God is doing and try to understand what God's economy looks like and how it's different from the world's economy. So we are in a study of Nehemiah. We have been talking about how the last, uh, for about 100 years, the, the people of Israel had been kicked out of the land of Israel and had, been go- had gone into exile. God had warned them through the prophets and through the law that if they persisted in disobeying God over and over and over again, that God would eventually hand them over to their enemies, and that's what happened. So they're in exile for several decades, and then they begin to trickle back over a period of time. And so here we are about 100 years into that period of exile, and there are now a few hundred, a few thousand people in Jerusalem, nothing like what it used to be, a very vulnerable population. And, and they, they have moved back into the rubble, wall-torn-down city. There's not a whole lot there, but they, they really want to come back and to rebuild this place. The walls of Jerusalem have been broken down. The stones had been burned and crumbled. They are vulnerable. The people can't grow crops because the enemies just come and raid their fields and take everything. They lose their possessions because there's no protective walls. As we talked last week about the Samaritans, the Samaritans are constantly after them and constantly giving them a hard time, especially now that they're trying to better themselves. You know those people who get after you, especially when you're trying to better yourself. That's what the Samaritans were to the people. And so anything they can gain, they're vulnerable to losing. So by this point, we have generations of poverty. We have generations of destitution, generations of doing things a certain way. So Nehemiah has arrived, called by God to rebuild Jerusalem's walls. 
And the, most of the book of Nehemiah is all about the wall building process, what's going on with the walls, what's going to happen after they build the walls. But here in the middle of Nehemiah chapter 5, which is where we're going to land today, in Nehemiah chapter 5, there's a really interesting interruption in the story. They interrupt the story of the wall building to have an economic crisis and a community conflict. Now, this is not good timing. It's not good timing to have an economic crisis in the middle of a really big building project. But as you probably know from your personal experience, rarely do our, our financial problems happen at a convenient time. Usually it's when we're in the middle of other things and trying to focus elsewhere. Never a good time to have a financial crisis, so, and yet here they are. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, We've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we're powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. So here they are trying to build a wall, and the people come to Nehemiah. They, it says they raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Who are they raising an outcry against? They're raising an outcry against fellow Jews, people who are living in Jerusalem with them. They're, they're Jew, but they are nobles and officials. There's, there's some sort of leadership type role that they have. And they're saying, these are the problems that we're having, Nehemiah. First of all, we can't get enough to eat. We are starving. There is a famine because Samaria is mad at us. There isn't any trade happening on this trade route. We're trying to build this wall. We don't have enough food. We literally are afraid we're going to die. We don't have, it, it's that serious. We might die because we don't have enough food. That's really serious. If you've ever gone hungry, which I know many of you have here, you understand how it makes you feel this intensity of we have to do something now. I have to do something for my children now. They also say we are mortgaging everything. We're, forced, we're being forced to borrow. We have, everything is mortgaged. All the property, all the fields, all the land, all the, 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 the buildings that I own, everything is being mortgaged at terrible rates. The interest rates are incredibly high. It's, it's oppressive taxation. On top of it, we're trying to pay all these taxes, and expenses are completely through the roof. We cannot keep up. What are we going to do? And they said, and furthermore, these government taxes that we have to pay to the Persian Empire, everything is so high. And not only are we borrowing money, but we're at the point of, of having our children be enslaved for work because there's, we have nothing left but our children. In times of difficulty, everybody suffers, but the poor suffer the most. Beware of making bad decisions when you're in a desperate situation. So this is a protest about financial injustice. It's a protest of, of saying this is not okay. 
Just like the, the illustration with Pam and her mother. This is Pam saying, this is financial injustice. This is wrong. This is crooked. This is taking advantage. They, they are not serving us well. And I want you to know, church, because we are a, a community in which we have issues, we have, we have difficult issues like this, and we have people being taken advantage of, there are a few words of wisdom that I want to share before we go back into the passage. Let me just pause for a minute. Some of you are familiar with payday lending. You've maybe heard about check and go. Anybody heard about check and go? Cash connection, A1 cash advance. There's one of these just down the street from us. Advance America. These are payday lending institutions. These are, uh, a payday loan is a fast, short-term loan that you can get. Uh, you, it's not hard to get one. They, they, they make it so it's easy for you to get one because they want you to get a loan because they want you to then be in debt to them. Usually it's for an amount less than $500. They specifically target communities without banks, which is the neighborhood we live in. They specifically target recent immigrants and those who, uh, young adults and seniors and those who, uh, one of the things I mentioned said, one of the things I read said, those who are recently divorced, like just targeting people who are financially vulnerable, people with bad credit, specifically targeting poor neighborhoods. I put in my phone, nearest payday loan, and uh, this map came up. You can see we're at that blue dot, kind of around to that blue dot right in the middle there. And do you see all those dots and numbers that indicate the locations of the payday loans? If we were to zoom out on that, you would see hardly any other dots for payday loan institutions. You're not going to see that in Ada. You're not going to see that in Hudsonville. In fact, in Hudsonville, they have a bank. That's what comes up when you search over there. they got a bank. What they have targeted the city of Grand Rapids, and do you see how it specifically targets the southeast side, which is the most economically depressed area of the city? Do you see the targeting of the poor on this map? These are the locations of our payday lending institutions. These loans are targeted toward the most vulnerable, and they also take the most advantage of people. Last Sunday, Pastor Phil talked about the risks of credit card debt and talked about the high interest rates of credit cards and was talking about some of the recent economic things that were coming out of the government. And uh, one of the things he mentioned was that store credit cards in particular, like a Target card or other, other specific store credit cards, are at a very high rate of about 30% interest. And uh, the, the state of the economy is such that they're probably not going to be coming down anytime soon. And he was giving a warning about using those cards and, and about the, the, the trickiness that it can get us into. So we were talking about 30% interest being a really difficult thing. Let me tell you about payday lending institutions. The interest that they charge ends up being about 300 to 500%. You should be horrified by that. Payday lending institutions are illegal in 12 states for a reason. It's a $7 billion industry. Somebody's making money off of this. And we think people who are vulnerable, people who are desperate, think, all right, I'm going to use one of these things because it's going to help me out in this time of year. They are targeting people who are desperate and are taking advantage of those who are most vulnerable. 
Another option would be, another thing to talk about is pawn shops and how pawn shops work. How a pawn works is you take a treasure, an item of value, something that's, that has some value, you take it into the shop and you say, here, I'm going to leave my thing here, and then they're going to give you money for it. If you pay the money back, you can get your thing back. If you don't pay the money back, then you just sold it really cheap. Usually they give you about 25% of what the, th what the item is worth. So if you have a $2,000 item, they're gonna give you $500 for it. If you have a 100, uh, if you have an item that's valued at $100, they're gonna give you $25 for it. And so it's already not a good deal, but then by the time that you pay interest on that loan, because you do have to pay interest, you end up paying a ton of money. The APR is about 200%. Uh, that you end up paying a ton of money just to get back your item that was already worth more to begin with than what you ever got from it. And so we talk about these things. We need to talk about these things in our community because we need to help each other. We need to warn our brothers and sisters and people that we love saying, these, these, these are not your friends. These are not helpful institutions that help you in your journey. There are other ways to do things. There are better ways to do things that can protect you. And God, the, the Bible is full of wisdom about don't get trapped by debt. Don't get trapped by high interest. The Bible knows how easy it is to fall into these situations and really encourages us, find a way out of these difficult situations. So, we talk about these things as brothers and sisters. Again, more of this in that conference that we're going to be doing in the spring. But I want you to know the gravity and how it can so ensnare people and trap people for years when we get stuck in these kinds of cycles. I think it's also important for us to pay attention to who's behind those things. I mean, Pam, Pam called out the name of the organization. She called out the name of the, of the mortgage company. And I think as brothers and sisters, we help each other. And for those, Isaiah 10 says, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. The scripture says, Woe to those people who are behind that. Woe to people who are participating in that. So, jump back to Nehemiah. Jumping back to Nehemiah. We have these nobles and officials, right? You got, the, you got the regular ordinary people, and then you've got the nobles and officials. And if you're like me, the first time I read that passage, I thought, oh, there are those nobles and officials, those people in power, they're always corrupt, aren't they? Well, Nehemiah's in power. He's not always corrupt, by the way. He's actually a great example, so not always. But, but we read about these nobles and officials, and we're like, all right, like their position got to their heads, and, you know, they're, they're just these bad people, and they're the people in power. But as, as in digging into the story, the Israelites, none of them really had a lot of power at this point. I mean, even, even the nobles and officials would have been oppressed by the Samaritans. Even the nobles and officials would have been oppressed by the heavy taxation that's coming from the Persian Empire. And they, we, we know from reading in the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah that's telling the history of the Jews during this time, they didn't, the nobles and officials didn't have a ton of power. They had some sort of influence, but they didn't have a ton of power in the community. And the Bible doesn't clearly say how they got into this pickle that they're in. But I think it's possible that they didn't set out with the intention of cheating their Jewish brothers and sisters. I don't know. I mean, maybe they did, but I don't know that they would have woken up one morning and thought, how can I take advantage of my poor neighbors and get as much as I can out of them? It's possible that's what happened. 
but just knowing how humanity works uh, and knowing that they were all trying to work together to build this wall, they're all trying to do some rebuild Jerusalem together, I just wonder if perhaps they were just feeling the financial crunch themselves. They were feeling the pinch of high taxes. They were feeling the dynamics of there's not enough food, things are scared, are scary, I, I've got to take care of my kids, I've got to take care of my family. And I just, I just wonder if they kind of just slipped into financial sin, just kind of found themselves there. Uh, uh, maybe it was kind of an accidental overreach of power. It's just how we do things. It's just the way that things are, are done. You know, times are tough and everybody's doing it. And yeah, it's too bad. It's just kind of how it is. And I just wonder how many of us relate to that accidentally slipping into financial sin. Our motives weren't bad. We didn't mean to do what we did. We didn't, we didn't mean to do things how they ended up turning out. But we've just kind of found ourselves with a financial situation in which we're not honoring God. It's not, the, it's not a, a good way to do stuff. And, and maybe we found ourselves in some problems now. Maybe like Nehemiah's people, we think, business is business. I've just got to take care of me. And we just don't even think about the other people who are affected. Maybe we think this is just how it is. It's just, it's just too bad. Some people have more, some people have less. It's just how it is. Maybe we think, it's my money. I'm going to do what I want with it. And it's nobody else's business how I spend it. Or maybe we think things like, you just don't understand. You have no idea the stress that I'm going through. I mean, maybe the nobles were thinking that. You have no idea the stress that I'm carrying in my role. You don't know the fear that I feel right now. Some of us do this. We get afraid, we get stressed, and we start making decisions. Some of us say, you don't know how much pain I have. I have so much pain, and so I need to spend my money on these things to alleviate my pain. Or maybe we would say, God's not providing in the way that I need him to, and it's a need. And God's letting me down. God's not doing it. I'm not, I'm not waiting any longer. I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. Sometimes we just freak out and we think, oh, I'm just going to drastically spend money because I just want to. And, and we just throw caution to the wind. Can you think of any, any financial decision, any financial practice you have, that is unholy. Any way that you use money that doesn't honor God. Spending on a certain thing, hoarding in a certain way, not using what you have, using what you have. Can you identify a financial sin that is part of your life that you currently have? As I examine my own practices of money, and as I have been praying through this myself, I, I've been asking the Holy Spirit, examine my heart. Help me to see what you see. Help me to see my financial situation through your eyes. What do I need to see, God? Because I think it's possible that we don't necessarily always mean, I mean, sometimes we intend to do bad things. We're like, oh, I'm going to go do this terrible sin. Like, like Pam said, I'm going to set down my faith for a minute, and then I'm going to go do what I want to do, and I'm going to come back and pick it back up again. 
I think sometimes we do that because that's who, because we're dumb that way. But sometimes we slip into it little by little over time, justifying our decisions, justifying this, justifying that. And it, it happens so gradually that eventually it feels normal. See, the economy of the world will tell you your money is yours, you do what you want with it. The economy of the world will tell you it's too bad if your money hurts poor people. Yep, that's unfortunate, it's just what it is. And the economy of the world will say, every man for himself, I'll do the best with what I have, it's just too bad for other people. What about you? Can you identify any financial sin that's been part of your life or that is currently part of your life? So the nobles and officials get called out. This is what happens, verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, hey, I've got some righteous anger here. We were taken from exile from our land. We were made slaves, and now we're just coming back from our, ens- from our enslavement, and here you're enslaving your own people. We just were getting free from slavery. Isn't this ironic? What are you thinking? And the scripture continues, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. Usury is a very high interest rate. It's taking advantage of somebody who's borrowing something from you. Let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. So he says, give back their stuff and also all the interest that you've collected too. This is not right. You need to fear the Lord. And Nehemiah says in verse 10, I and my brothers and my men are also lending money. He's saying, we're loaning money. We're just not doing it in a bad way. He's saying lending is fine. Usury is not. He said, and the Bible, the Bible is constantly condemning greed that seeks a profit at people's expenses. Uh, The scripture is full of this sort of thing. The Old Testament law has lots of laws that were set up about what loans are like, how you give a loan, how you receive a loan, how you pay back a loan. Lots of laws about when it's wise to not take a loan, when it's wise to to not charge interest. Uh, It says don't co-sign on a loan with anybody. So Leviticus is very clear about this. Proverbs gives lots of wisdom about this. They, They set up things like there's a limit on debt. You can only have a debt for seven years before it's supposed to be forgiven. And so a lot of the law was designed, they didn't have official banks like we do. They, you couldn't take someone and do a lawsuit and have them be prosecuted if they were mistreating you. We had the law of God. The law of God was designed to provide protection for people, to govern society, to say this is wise, this is not wise. Be careful here, be careful there. 
So Nehemiah calls them out, and it says in verse 8, they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Have you ever had a moment of conviction? Maybe about money, maybe about something else. When it's kind of like this heavenly spotlight shines down on you from heaven and you're like, the light is on me, and you see yourself almost like you've never seen yourself before. It's like the scales fall off your eyes, you have clarity, and you see what God sees when he looks at you. This is what's happening to the officials. It's this light from heaven shining down on them, and suddenly they see what they're doing. This is conviction. This is not just feeling guilty. This is not just feeling shame. Everybody experiences guilt and shame from time to time. This is not just awareness that, oh, we're going to be in trouble if we don't change. Conviction is a spiritual experience that comes from the Holy Spirit, and it has everything to do with a heart change, with your heart being torn, with your heart being affected of, oh, I'm really not okay. Conviction gets to our deepest emotions and feelings. John 16 tells us, that the Holy Spirit, when he's talking about when the Holy Spirit comes, which the Holy Spirit has come now, he says the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. Part of the job of the Holy Spirit is to shine that light on you, to shine that light, to help you see your error so that you can change. Not, not to shine the light on you so that you can be like, oh, I'm so awful, I'm going to cower up and melt into a little puddle. That's, that's what the devil wants you to do. He wants that condemnation. He wants to focus on the shame and the guilt. But the Holy Spirit is all about conviction, where there is that heart-cutting, poignant, intense moment of realizing, oh, I see myself as you see me, God. And then have that heart turn back toward God and say, I need your help. That's conviction, and that is an incredible gift of God to us. The Holy Spirit convicts us, and the Holy Spirit leads us to repentance. The, the, the enemy wants you to just grovel and, and melt. The Holy Spirit leads you to repentance. Romans 2.4 says God's kindness leads you to repentance. When you are in the wrong, when you're using money incorrectly, when you're spending it, you know, you know you're not supposed to be in any of that stuff. You're messing around. You know you're being lazy with your money. You know, you know that you're just being self-centered and you're not, you're not seeking God about any of this. You, you, know, you know you're there. And when the Holy Spirit breaks your heart over that, and then directs you toward God to reorient yourself, turn toward God and say, God, I need your help. That is redemption. That is the kingdom. That is the gospel. That is good news right there. We cannot be saved apart from conviction of sin. 
And I believe that one of the things God wants to do to us is he shapes us financially and disciples us financially with this focus that we're doing over the next couple of years. I believe that one of the things God wants to do is to convict us of financial sin, lead us to repentance, and I think that two years from now we're going to be a different church than what we are now because of it. So the nobles and officials have this moment, this spotlight moment. And they realize, this isn't just business as usual. This isn't just, it's too bad, but it has got to be done. They realize, this offends God. They realize, and it's, it's, it's self-seeking. And it's hurting others. It's ultimately hurting me too. And God hates it. And they have a choice here. They could say, well, I'm just going to kind of keep on doing what I'm going to do because I don't see another way. Or they say, I messed up. Sometimes we think we have to have the plan figured out of what we're going to do after we say we messed up. It, the, these people, they, they could have said, well, well, um, you know, it's, it's really too bad, but well, what are we going to do about the money? And what are we going to do about the stuff? And what are we going to do from here on out? And so, like, let's kind of just work this out. They don't try to figure out the plan. They don't try to figure out the restoration plan. They just say, I'm wrong. And then God comes to them through Nehemiah and gives them a restoration plan. They say, I messed up. Nehemiah says, what you're doing is not right. You need to fear God. Stop doing what you're doing. And then he says in verse 11, give back to them their fields, their vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them. So practically, this is what this looks like. Nehemiah is telling them these things. Here's what they do. The nobles and officials, they go home. They get into their money box that they've got under their bed. They pull out their money box from under the bed. They open up. They've got this bag of coins and this bag of coins. And they go and they take this and they say, all right, um, I just cleared out all of my income that I got from you and I'm giving it back. Oh, and um, here are the keys to your house. Here, here is the the title to your vineyard, and I'm giving those back to you. They're physically taking their own, the, the, the stuff that they had acquired, and are, are giving those back. And this is not just a repentance in their, it's not just a spiritual repentance that's between them and God. This is a repentance that requires relationship. They have to look these people in the eye and say, here is what I took from you. Here are the keys to your house. They are reestablishing relationship. Church, we like repentance when it's just between us and God and we can kind of keep all the embarrassing stuff silent. But always repentance involves connection with community. It's always about bringing unity to the people. Here's what happens. Verse 12, they say, we will give it back. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Sometimes we call this restitution. Anybody know the word restitution? How about the word making, the phrase making amends? In the recovery community, we talk about making amends. This is what's happening here. They are restoring relationship. There's this relational component. Repentance is always remarkable. Real repentance is always remarkable. 
Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. He takes his robes and he shakes it out and he says, God's going to shake you out if you don't keep your promise. It's just a, a visual sign of saying this is the oath that we're taking. And at this, the whole assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And, and the people did as they had promised. Everybody says, Amen, this is good, may it be so. And they say, praise the Lord. Now, who gets the praise here? Who gets the praise? It, they, you know who could have gotten the praise? The nobles and officials. They could have said, all right, here's all your stuff back. And then everybody else could have said, oh, nobles and officials, that was so good of you to do that. That was so good that you did that. They could have gotten the praise. Or the, the people who had been taken from, they could have gotten the praise. Way to stand up for yourselves. Way to advocate for yourselves. This is, wait, good job on that. That didn't happen either. Look who gets the praise. Praise the Lord. Because they knew the Holy Spirit did this conviction. The Holy Spirit empowered Nehemiah to confront them. The Holy Spirit worked in their hearts. The Holy Spirit worked in the people who had to forgive. And there's this beautiful unity that happens. Children who had been taken to slavery are restored to their families. Property is restored. Money is restored. There is beauty and there is goodness and repentance. There is unity. There is brotherhood and sisterhood that, get, that gets developed here like it had not been before. Amen and praise the Lord is what happens when we repent from financial sin. Pretty amazing. So briefly, four lessons about God's economy. I'll just run through real quick. The world's economy says, I'm in charge of my own money. I'm in charge of my own money. But in God's economy, number one, God is the owner of everything. I am the steward. God is the owner of everything. I am the steward. God is the owner. That means every single thing that there is on this earth belongs to God. Steward means we're his servant. We're the one who manages God's affairs and we, we spend on his behalf, we buy on his behalf. We are the ones who manage what God has. God is the owner, we are the stewards, and the owner's agenda is the only agenda that matters. What God wants to get done is the only thing that matters. So stewardship, sometimes you've heard the word stewardship, we're going to be talking about this in a couple weeks on Thanksgiving weekend, but stewardship is not the same thing as giving. Stewardship is not about what we give, it's about what we keep. It's about how we manage and use what God has entrusted to us. We talk about tithes and offerings at City Life. Tithes and offerings are a way of living out God's mission for our church. God is doing a big thing in this world. He has a little piece of it that City Life is accomplishing as part of his mission. And tithes and offerings are a way that we participate with God in the mission that he has for us to do as a church. It's like we're building our part of the wall in that way. So every time we tithe, it's a turning back to God's economy. It's a reminding of ourselves that everything we have is from the Lord. And so we give him that first box of our gold boxes. We give him that first box. God is the owner of everything. I am the steward. The sec here's the second lesson. The world economy says, the poor are an unfortunate reality. But in God's economy, number two, God gives special attention 
to the poor. God really loves poor people. God really loves vulnerable people. God loves everybody, but when you read the Bible, there is a special care and consideration that the scriptures talk about over and over and over again with the poor, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan. Over and over, we see the laws making provisions for the poor. We see God talking about the poor. We see God talking about how important it is to care for the poor. Proverbs 19.17 says, He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. Similarly, Isaiah 58 is our theme verse for this campaign, and part of that chapter goes like this. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Over and over, God communicates his particular love for the poor. The third thing is the world's economy says, once you've messed up financially, once you've really screwed up financially, you're always going to be dirty. Once... Once you've declared bankruptcy, it's just, that's forever going to mark you. When you've lost it all in gambling, city life, we have had lots of city lifers who've been in that situation. Money laundering, theft, again, city lifers who've been in this situation. When you've defaulted on your child support payments, when you've taken financial advantage of others, focused on self-promotion at the expense of others, the world's economy says, once you're in this kind of trouble, you know, that's just your life. But in God's economy, number three, those who truly repent of financial sin are given a new chance. Those who truly repent of financial sin are given a new chance. The, the nobles and officials are given another chance. Do you remember the story of Matthew, Jesus' disciple in the New Testament? Matthew was a tax collector. He was the lowest of the low. He repented of his ways. He left where he was, and he came and he followed Jesus. Jesus gave him a new chance and a new life. Those who truly repent of financial sin are given a new chance. You see, in the economy of God, repenters are forgiven. In the economy of God, we don't have to be stuck in our shame history. Repentance is our door to new life and salvation by Jesus. Remember Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament? They gave an offering, but the, and they looked like they were generous, and they wanted everybody to think that they were generous, but they were really hiding it and, and lied about what happened, and they had multiple opportunities to tell the truth. They got confronted, and they lied and lied, and God strikes them dead. The integrity, the integrity matters. But those who truly repent, they did not repent. Those who truly repent of financial sin are given a new chance. And then fourth, the world's economy says money is private. But in God's economy, your finances are, number four, directly connected to unity and community. Over and over, we see this. Or the way we use our money affects other people. The way we give our money affects other people. 
God is interested in, in our unity and in our community with one another, and money has a place in that in some way. We don't work just for ourselves, but we're blessed to be a blessing. And so in God's economy, when we repent of financial sin, when we earnestly pray, God, change me. God, examine my heart. God, I confess sin in ways that I've used money. Sins that seem, it, it seemed personal to me. It seemed like I didn't need to, to deal with it. It was just how things were. I just kind of stumbled into it. I slipped into it. But when we repent of that, the gift of God is repentance and rescue. And so when we do that together, we can come together and we can say, Amen! And we can say, Praise God! And we can be a worshiping community together again because repentance is so good because it's about the brotherhood and the sisterhood and the love for one another. This should result in an amen and in a praise. In our Kingdom Foundations campaign, this is just as much about our hearts as it is anything else. And it's not just about the projects we're doing. It's about the project God's doing in our own selves. It's about the foundation God wants to be in your life. It's about the refreshment and the renewal and the restoration and the rebuilding that God wants to do in your life to, to break patterns of, of of generational poverty, to break patterns of bond, financial bondage, to break, to break the bondage of debt. God wants to bring us into a place of flourishing and wholeness and healing. It's, it's probably not going to happen overnight, but God is doing this work and he's inviting you into something very new. So I want to ask you today, will you let the Holy Spirit examine your heart? Will you let the Holy Spirit examine your heart? Say, God, search me. Know my heart. God, search my checkbook. God, search my bank account. God, search my Apple Pay. God, search the coins and the cash that I have in my coat pocket. God, search this. Is there any sin in me? How can I give a holy use to your resources, God? Do you need to let God be in control? Do you need to love the poor more and ask, do you need to ask God to break your heart for the poor? Is there any financial ungodliness in your life that you just need to let God explore? Do you need to consider ways to give generously? What's your action step? Because you could all just leave now and leave and think, oh good, I'm glad that's over. I don't have to think about that anymore. But what, what action step might the Holy Spirit be inviting you into? What's next for you? What does God want you to do today in response to this? Because this whole Kingdom Foundations thing isn't just about our projects. It's about what God's doing in us and the journey he's got us on. And so, Lord God, we do come before you today and we do say, those of us who have courage say, search me, O God. Search my finances, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the everlasting path. 
Lord Jesus, I pray against the condemnation of the enemy and pray that the messages of shame and condemnation will be silenced and that instead you will give us the gift of your Holy Spirit's convicting. That we will be cut to the heart where we need to be cut to the heart. That we will restore and return what needs to be restored and returned. That we will avoid foolishness and instead seek wisdom. Lord, I pray that your kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, particularly in this area of our money. We ask for your help. We surrender our control. And we say yes to you. In your name we pray. Amen.